Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Good morning again. Um, the scripture reading this morning is going to be from Matthew 26, 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and that you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and welcome to our second time of doing live streaming and in-person worship here at Redeemer Lincoln Square. Um, Since we've been back, um, thank you so much for uh, being so patient with us. Uh, getting up and um, ramping back up again, it means a lot to us. Um, this past week, I was actually able to get my hands on a yet-to-be-published survey that is going to be, uh, it's a Gallup poll. Um, it hasn't been published yet, but it's really interesting. What it says is that nearly half of all Americans, 48% of all Americans believe that Donald Trump is actually trying to gradually transform this country into a, into a dictatorship. Let that sink in for a second. Half of Americans believe this, 48% um, percent specifically. 82% of Biden voters, potential Biden voters, believe this, even though 96% of Trump supporters completely disagree with that statement. Now, on the other side, Nearly half, 47% of all Americans believe that the Democrats are trying to gradually transform this country into a socialist country. And specifically, 90% of potential Trump supporters, uh, uh, voters, believe this is true. And I think this is actually a pretty important study that's come out, or is going to come out, because what it shows us is that in the past, Politics was uh, essentially 
big government versus small government. It was uh, higher taxes versus lower taxes. But everybody believed that the other side was trying to create a good society. But now, the way the language has changed, the way that we're actually talking about each other, is that we morally believe the other side is trying to destroy our country. Each side sees the other side as morally corrupt, making it near impossible to debate, to discuss, to convince each other, and everything is now uh, boiling down to politics. And so now that we're only about nine days away from uh, this next election, we must ask, and this is the time to ask, if this is true, if everything boils down to politics, then um, is the church just one more political entity? I think this is really important to talk about because there are so many questions right now about the role of the church or the role of Christians when it comes to politics. Individual Christians in the church itself. We've been focusing all, all fall so far on Jesus' interactions with the leadership of his community, the Pharisees, and this is one more place where he does so. And he dives straight into the question that I think has been on everybody's mind. And so we need to buckle up for the ride because this text shows us what does Peter do, how does Jesus respond, and then what does it mean for us now? I'll look at it again. What did Peter do? How did Jesus respond? And then what does it mean for us now? So first, what does Peter do? If you look at the text, it says he picks up the sword. And not only that, it says that he says he, the word sword shows up six times in nine verses. If anything shows up six times in nine verses, that's the main point of the text, which is interesting because usually this text talks about Judas and betrayal and nobody talks about this aspect. And yet Matthew mentions the word sword in verse 47, verse 51, three times in verse 52, verse 55. And we know it's Peter because it, it, he's not named in Matthew, but in John 18, he is. And so why did he pick up the sword? And I think it's important first to kind of go into what did swords mean back then? Because swords were generally instruments of the state. Go to John 18, and it's only the soldiers that had swords. And the sword is not just a, a um, tool, it's a symbol for political power and force. Romans 13 talks very specifically about this, that only the state has the power of the sword, it said. Only they have the power of force and can execute and arrest individuals. In other words, the sword is a symbol of a very particular type of power, a coercive power, a power that the state can wield. And frankly, I think a lot of us actually see power that way as well. That's how we actually uh, wield it as well. If you go to Alexander the Great, uh, you, you see him using war elephants to terrorize opponents. You go to Caesar, you go to any other king or queen. Look at yourself, the way we use our swords in our life. A sword is a means of power, and power means my way over your way. That's what it means. Power is I'm going to make you do what I think is right. I'm going to... Uh, uh, make sure this happens because I know what's best. And so the state does that, but that's what we do. And so when Peter picks up that sword, what he's essentially saying is, hey, Jesus, 
I know what you want. You want to make people do the right thing. And that's what you're here to do. And so you're like just every other political power. A lot of people today think the church and Christianity as a whole is really a power grab. And in a lot of ways, you, you can't blame people for thinking that way because the church has a pretty uh, spotted history. Heck, even Jesus' own disciples, Peter himself, got this wrong. That they thought that's what he had come to do. They went through all the scriptures. They went through the prophets as, that are mentioned here. They went through the Old Testament and they saw this coming kingdom. They saw this kingship of God, the Lord, the Messiah. And they thought that meant triumph was going to happen through power, politics, taking over, and winning. And so when Peter picks up that sword, what he's doing is, he's saying, this is, this is what you want, Jesus. And he cuts off the ear of the servant. Now, I actually never thought about this until I read some of these commentaries. Peter wasn't trying to just cut off his ear. This wasn't some duel going, I cut off your ear. I mean, that's, that's, that wasn't what he was trying to do. He probably was trying to cut off his head, and yet he's a fisherman with a sword, so luckily he wasn't very good at it. But um, not only did, G did Peter miss this servant's head, he missed the whole point of Jesus. He missed it all. Peter thought he was there to help Jesus and the messianic mission to take over the world, to make people do the right thing through force, because he knew, and we don't know of any other way. And we're seeing this play out right now in real time, that we only know how to get people to do what we want through coercion and force and power. How was Jesus going to set up a kingdom without weapons, without force, without power? Tom Holland recently wrote a book it's not so much about Christianity, but more Christianity's influence on the West. And he points out that most Westerners today, right now, people, this is what people believe in. They believe in human rights. They believe in the equal dignity of all people. They believe in the value of the poor and the weak and the marginalized. And they actually believe slavery and human trafficking is wrong. The, the prayer of lament that we just had and Holland points out, secular people in New York City, in the world, believe these same things. But where did these ideas come from? He starts tracing and trying to go through and trying to figure out where did they come from. And they didn't originate in Eastern cultures. They didn't originate in, primarily in Greek or Roman cultures. They didn't arise from a naturalistic understanding of, of, of the world through the strong eat the weak. No. They came from Christianity. And so take slavery, just what we just talked about, human trafficking, which, by the way, the church has a very mixed um, record on this. They're, the church was complicit in a lot of the African-American slave trade, very problematic. And yet Holland points out that slavery, in one form or another, the reason why it's still so prominent is every single culture universally accepted it worldwide. That... It was actually an acceptable practice. So where did the idea come from that it was wrong? And he traced it back to Christians like Gregory of, of Nyssa who read Genesis and concluded that if humankind was made in the image of God, then slavery has to go. And it took a long time. It took way too long. But in reading the Bible, Christians first pushed the idea that slavery was wrong. And it didn't come from any other source. And so what's the point? The point is this, Peter was wrong. 
He picked up the sword, and he assumed that's the role of the church, and that's what Jesus had come to do. He thought that's what Jesus was about. However, what happened was, is that when 20% of humans started reading Genesis and concluding that this is how humans were made in the image of God, that's how the world changed politically. So he was wrong that the church was a political institution, but that doesn't mean that Christianity doesn't have huge political implications. I think this is an important distinction I need to make, so I'm going to say it again. That he was wrong that the church was a, a political institution. However, Christians living out their lives has huge political implications. So even though the church isn't supposed to be about politics, the way you live your life impacts the world. It changes your life, and when it does change your life, it changes how you see other people. It changes how you interact with other people, how you treat each other, how you're involved in the world. And therefore, even though Jesus isn't political, he doesn't coerce, he doesn't force, he doesn't maim, he doesn't intimidate, he doesn't use power the way we normally would use power. But a life lived for him affects politics. It applies into every facet of life. And so what did, what did Peter do? What, what, did, what, did he, what, did he, what did he do? He picked up the sword. Now, that's one. Two, how did Jesus respond? Jesus says, I'm not about swords. Jesus said, put your sword back. This is in verses 52 through 55. In, verse, in, in response to Peter, in response to the crowd, Jesus very bluntly said, you're treating me just like every other zealot who ever had an uprising. You're treating me like every other person who made a political move. And he says, am I leading a rebellion? Is that why you came? In other words, I'm not trying to do what you think I'm trying to do. I'm not using the same means that everybody else does. And to, very, to be very specific about it, he says, he actually says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And so he's saying, I'm not here to take power in the way that you think. I'm not here to make people do right in the way that you think I would. And actually, it's actually I find this interesting. It's not that he couldn't, right? In verse 53, he cites these 12 legions of angels that he could call down. And I had to look this up. 12 legions is 72,000. So he, he's like, I could call 72,000 people. I could have a force that could overwhelm this local area, but he goes, that's not what I'm going to do. Why not? And I think the answer here is, is um, helpful. Look at history. Just, just take, take, do a little bit of a historical analysis. Whenever a, a power comes to another group of people and says, do it our way, how does that go? Is it, is it a smooth transition? More often than not, it's not. If Jesus tried to use power the same way the Romans had been using power in that area. All that would do, it would have led to resistance, resentment, and war. But don't even go to history. Look in your own heart. When somebody comes to us and says, you have to do this, and they take their power and they try to use it on us, how, does our heart, how do our hearts normally react? We go, no. It resists. Because even though that's how we operate in all of life, we, know, we actually, the product isn't always good. It's more often than not, it never fully works. And so the minute Peter picked up that sword and said, I'm going to use my power to get power, 
The minute you try to get other people to do what you want through power, people will not respond the way that you want. It won't actually work. And so what does Jesus do? What he's trying to do in this whole little text is he's trying to say, you, you, you still don't understand me. You still miss about who I am. And he actually, I think he shows it in, in three ways here. You don't understand what I'm here to actually do. You don't, therefore, you don't really understand the gospel. And therefore, you don't really understand the heart behind the, the universe. Let me just walk through those really quickly. Because if you don't understand those three things, you don't understand me, he's saying. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. So when he says, hey, you don't understand what I'm really here to do, Think again, go back to Peter, go back to the disciples. They thought he was here to take power, which is, you do things for me. Instead, Jesus is saying, my whole life has been, what can I do for you? And if you don't understand that about Jesus, you've missed the essence of Jesus. Because Jesus' whole main point of life was, my, it was through my life and death was my, how can I live a life for you? It's the complete reversal of how we live. We live, what can the world do for me? He says, what can I do for you? Right? And that answer that he gives is what led him to the cross. It's what led him to take our place. It's what led him to say, you know, I'm going to take what they deserve so they get what I deserve. That's the essence of Jesus. I've come not to bring the sword, I've come to bear the sword, is the essence of Jesus. The sword is judgment, and Jesus takes that on the cross, and if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand him. Now, secondly, he says you don't actually get the gospel either, because at some level, you know how the gospel boils down in our mind? It boils down to this. The bad people are out, and the good people are in. Right? And most of our lives is living to understand our place in society in accordance with everybody else. We're trying to assess ourselves, we're trying to assess them. What is that? That's the bad people are out and the good people are in. I'm going to try to get into the good side. That's why Peter picked up the sword, because he said, hey, I know who should be in and who should be out right now. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is this, that Jesus had to die for me, but he was willing to die for me, and that's the beginning of actually trying to understand anyone else in the world. Because it's the beginning of trying to be curious, of wondering how and why someone would act or vote in a way that was different from you. Because it begins with a humility that says, I want to know who they are. But only a humility that has a, with a deep introspection that allows us to say, listen, I have needs in my own right, and yet I was loved. And so I, therefore, I can go into other people's spaces and do the same thing. Put it this way, if you walk into a room and say, listen, I'm right and you're wrong and I want to tell you about it, 
Do you know how many people want to listen to you? Zero. But if you walk into a room and say, I'm right and you're wrong, and I want to tell you about it, guess how likely that you're listening in that moment? Zero. But if you walk into a space like the woman at the well in John 4, and you walk into a room and you say, let me tell you about everything this person, this person knows everything about me and he still accepted me. Not only does that make you a very interesting person, not only does it uh, allow you to have a story to say, but now you're in a position to want to be curious of others. Right? And so that's not I'm in and you're out. A gospel change heart would never say that. So the, a gospel change heart, how dare I condemned? I was condemned. How dare I not have hope for those people over there? And I cut them off. I was cut off. How dare I not love them? I was unlovable. See, it opens the doors to previously siloed spaces and individuals because it treats them with dignity because we aren't dividing them from the commonality of all of humanity, which so often happens in political conversations. It's because, it's, it's because of a misunderstanding of the gospel. That's the second thing. Now, thirdly, Jesus is saying, you really don't understand me because you don't, actually, you don't understand how the world, how the universe actually works. See, what's the heart of the universe? Before creation, what was there? There was the Trinity. Genesis 1 says before even creation happened, there was a triune God that was in full existence, in full community, in perfect relationship with each other, perfect community of love in reality, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all different, all, all with different roles, different levels, but in perfect harmony, delighting, caring, praising, enjoying, serving, listening, asking, wondering about each other, pouring love into each other. If that's the very heart of the universe, then the reason why a being like that creates at all in the first place is to spread the love and community out into the world. God, therefore, when he created, he did so, so that you and I could participate in that community of love. And if you fail to see that, then you don't understand why Jesus would enter into history to die for us. Because when Jesus came into the world and gave up his power, when he went to the cross, all he was being was the second member of the, of the Trinity, what he had been doing his entire existence. Is, so when he comes to the cross and sacrifices his life on the cross, that's the very heart of the universe. In other words, it's a power that operates by giving up power. Perfectly serving, perfectly giving, perfectly going. And if that's the center of reality, then the reason why Jesus does everything else is he knows that's actually how the world works. See, I think we've misunderstood power. We thought it's about taking. And he says, no, power is about giving. If you want real influence, if you want real change, give it up. That's what Jesus did. He gave it up, and that's the core of the universe. Because he knew that's the best way to change anybody, the best way to influence the best way to serve and care. Jesus is saying, that, hey, I'm part of the Trinity and I'm the, it's at the very heart of reality is service and care and therefore I've come to serve you. The world says your life for mine. I'm saying my life for you. The world says your life, life is about 
you serving me. So all relationships is what you can get out of it. But if he says, no, it's my life to serve you, then all relationships is how can I benefit them? And if you're one of his followers, this is how we will live. It's a love that isn't political, but it has political implications. What if this church, what if the church encouraged people to live life like this? If we realize what Jesus is saying here, I know the world is always wanting people to, they, you know, what's the church going to vote for and, and what's their stance on certain situations? They want to know how we're going to wield our swords. And let me try to do this very carefully. I do believe individual Christians should have political positions, right? A life affected by Jesus must seek out to live that life in the world and figure out how to apply what we know, what God loves, what he wants out into the world. We should definitely have political positions as individuals to care for this world. But I don't think the church should because the head of the church is Jesus. And think about for a moment, who in all of human history affected the most individuals? Who has changed the most amount of cultures? Who has affected the most total lives? Who changed the ethics of the world? It's Jesus, and guess what? He never won an election. He never led an army. He never picked up a sword. He never wielded the sword, and I don't think his church should either. It's power coming to change people's lives, which has huge political ramifications, indeed. But it isn't political. So last point. All right, you say, what does this mean for us? Go to verse 56, and Jesus says, the reason why this is all happening The reason why I'm getting arrested right now, the reason why this is all wrongly taking place is so that I can fulfill the scriptures, so that I can fulfill the writings and the prophets. And I think Jesus was probably thinking of Isaiah 53, where it talks about the Messiah who is despised and rejected, about to suffer and die. In other words, when he's saying, I have not come to use the sword, I've come to take the sword. I, I have to believe Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying and he's thinking about what's about to come. He had to have been thinking at some level, or at least at some point, about the Garden of Eden. That Adam and Eve had perfect relationship with, with God. But then they lost it. And what kept them away? It was a flaming sword. That's what kept them out from the universe of love and community. And so Jesus said, I have to take that sword of judgment I have to take that divine sword so that we can get access, so that humans can get access, so we can come back. I think that's the point. So go to the very last line of, of our text. And this, this, this line has hit me hard this week. The very last line says this, everybody deserted and fled. And I just try to sit in that moment, like what would, how lonely was the cosmic community of God in that, in that moment, that Jesus must have felt right then. He had given up everything to come to these people, and they abandoned him one by one. Everybody left. And I don't think that just means in the text. Everybody left. You left him. I left him. They left him. And yet he still stayed and died for us, and that brings new life, and that changes the world. It changes how we live and act. It changes how you are going to wield the swords that you have in your life. Are you going to cut down somebody else 
when you could have been cut down by God? Right? Would you really, would you really do that if you really understood what he did for you? See, the way Christians should handle politics would be vastly different than the, wor- the whole rest of the world. We would see power as something to give, not to take. Um, there, there was the PBS version of Le Miserable that I think came out, maybe it was last year, and it was, an, it was an interesting take. You have Jean Valjean, 19 years in prison, hard labor, gets out, has nothing. The bishop invites him into his home, gives him food, gives him clothing, and the, um, Jean Valjean you know, says, is this a trick? Why are you caring for me? And the bishop says in, in this version, God tells me to love our fellow man. God tells us to love our fellow man. And Jean Valjean says, how can I love my fellow man when he treats me worse than a dog? Which I think you can apply that to our own lives in some ways. And the bishop replies, don't you think it's possible that kindness and love can change a man? And at the time, Jean Valjean says no, but the rest of the story, you realize it actually did. The experience of grace in his life changed every aspect of how he lived it out. I think this is so counterintuitive. If you try to go to a consultant today and say, how can I have influence in the world? Right? I think there's a lot of tech people, people CEOs, very powerful people right now are going to consultants saying, how can I change the world? Do you know what they would um, say? Would they, would they say, don't go to college? Would they say, don't go into politics, don't even touch politics? Would they say, wander around in the wilderness and by the way, um, get wrongfully charged. Don't defend yourself and die when you're 33 years old. See, no consultant in the world would say that, and yet that's precisely what Jesus did, and it changed the world. And so if you live your life in the same way, live lives of service and care, not using the sword, it reverses all normal means of power. Here's what would happen. You might never be famous. You might never be uh, recognized. But do you know how many millions of people, maybe even billions of people at this point, who have changed the world, who are changing the world, and you'll never know who they are? Well, you see, why? Because they sought to serve and not to be known. They sought to say, my life for you, not your life for mine. Because that's what Jesus did for them. You know what version that might be for you? You might, maybe for you, it's, it's loving your family, caring for your mom, taking, talking to the person on the corner. Nobody might ever see this, but it would change the world because this is the core of who, what the universe is made of. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, always at work. We never know what he's doing. Right? John 3 says the Spirit's like the wind blows where it blows. You don't even know what he's doing because he's not pointing to himself because he's not trying to get the glory the Holy Spirit's constantly pointing to Jesus. He's constantly saying this is the essence of, of, of God is otherly. It's otherworldly. It's out. And if you make that the core of who you are, if you really feel rescued and pulled out from the cycles of destruction that maybe you have caused, maybe others have caused, you aren't just changed by it. You, don't, you become agents of change. And so let me just try to give you two quick practical applications of this. A heart changed by grace has humility to listen to the other side politically. 
The gospel creates a humility because if you are saved by grace, we now know that we often are the, are the agents of, of, of evil and it, and it allows us to talk to people whom we normally would have cut off. It should allow us to cross barriers. It should allow us to reconcile in a world that's increasingly not able to talk to each other. Christians should be the glue, can be the societal adhesive to pull us back together. To a, a heart changed by grace changes how we use power. What I mean by that is this. If, if, if the heart of the universe gives power away, and if we're saved by him giving his power away, that we will use power in life-giving ways too. It would, it would upend it. Put it differently, if the core of Christianity is Jesus dying for people who don't love him, who don't want him, for his enemies, and you place at the core of who you are, you would die for people who don't love you, who don't care for you. It might be your enemies as well. Have you thought about that recently? Have you thought actively at all, how can I make my political enemy flourish? And you say, well, I, I don't, don't think this is counterintuitive. Yeah, but that's what happened to you on the cross. The God of the universe said, how can I make them flourish? Let that sit in your heart and it would change everything else. Henry Smart, in a hymn, put it really well. He said this. He said, for not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I humbly submit I don't fully get this. I pray I'm not using or abusing, Father, the things that you've given me. I pray where I'm representing your countercultural heart, your, your, your way of wielding what's been given in, in ways that are, are unexpected. Father, every fiber in my being, when anybody comes and says, give me, or I have to have, I want to resist. And yet you didn't do that. Father, you're, you're a giving God and you gave so much. I pray that that would move us in new and profound ways. We are a couple days away from another election. I pray we realize who is king which you know, we normally would think a king in throne like this would, me, would mean power in the ways that we would see a king operate, but you, don't, you operate in such different ways. Let that move into the inner recesses of our hearts and it would change how we live our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.